every year, I think my job as a pastor or anybody who's a pastor, you know, we have a lot of responsibilities, but particularly this week, it's to make us understand just how crucial this week is and really the couple days that are in front of us are. So if you've got a Bible, we're trying to do that through uh, this Bible study that we're calling Footsteps. If you've got a Bible, open up to Mark chapter 11. Uh, we'll be picking up where we left off uh, a couple of days ago. We'll be again reading in chapter 11, verse 27 uh, through the end of the chapter, and we'll be reading throughout chapter uh, 12, and then we'll end up in 14. We're not going to read the whole entirety of these three chapters. Don't worry. I would encourage, if you haven't, that you should. Um, if, you really, if you want the unedited version of the Passion Week, read Matthew's Gospel because it's pages and pages long. Mark gives us the shorter version, which is not necessarily short, just shorter. Um, but I, I hope you've been reading the Gospels. I hope you've been reading Mark's Gospel since we're studying it. But uh, if you have the time, I would encourage you to read Matthew, Luke, or John as well. Um, as we build toward Easter, we're following in Jesus's footsteps as we get closer day, uh, uh, cl closer and closer to the, um, the biggest day of the year. Holy Week, of course, kicked off on Palm Sunday with the triumphal entry. Uh, we discussed that Jesus' action on triumphal entry or after the triumphal entry, or rather his inaction, um, his response to the rally and to the uh, invitation to be king, um, it really uh, was, uh, was deafening to his supporters. It was deflating to his supporters um, because they expected that he would lead a revolt. They expected he would fan the flame. But he literally says, you know what, y'all? Had, had a tough day. Thank you for the parade. Thank you for the treat. Had a great time. But I'm headed back to Bethany. I'm going to spend some time with my friends. I'll see y'all tomorrow. And everyone just looks around and looks at themselves and says, I don't understand. We just gave him a red carpet. We just gave him an opportunity. We're here for him. We've got the pitchforks and the torches ready to roll out. He, all he had to do was say, it's time. And we would have been there for him. And of course, he didn't need our help. He's Jesus. We've seen what he can do. So they were perplexed as to why he exited stage right and went to Bethany of all places, a little town outside of Jerusalem where he would spend the days with a few friends of his that weren't very special people by most people's uh, judgment. The next day on Monday, he shows back up and this is where he begins to communicate his true mission for the week. Um, he clashes with the religious leaders in the temple over their marketplace overlay of the temple. And, and to explain that, I, I wrote this in an email to kind of help, uh, help portray what was going on. But on Monday, he goes to the temple and the, the famous cleansing of the temple story takes place. Jesus walks in and there are these booths and there are these exchange tables all throughout the temple. Because being Passover week, a lot of people were going to be coming to town. A lot of people were making pilgrimage. A lot of people were going to be coming to make sacrifices throughout the week. And of course, on Passover, over later on that week. So what would happen would you would you would bring your lamb, you would bring your pigeon if you couldn't afford a lamb, you would bring your animal and it would be inspected. And most likely you would be told by the temple clerks that your animal was not clean. But wait, we have one who is clean. All you got to do is give us your animal and pay a little bit extra and we'll give you something that will help you get your sins forgiven. We can't guarantee it, but it'll help. So what was going on in the temple was this marketplace mentality. It was this idea that you need us to get to God and we're going to make a profit off of you. So they were literally selling salvation. And Jesus was not too happy about that, as you would expect. But why did he wait until now to make a big deal about it? Why had he put up with it for three years? Because Jesus didn't knew that this would spark 
a, a, a problem with the religious leaders. He knew what this would lead to. He knew they would have him killed over this. So he waited patiently. Jesus had come not to save them from Rome, but to save them from this. On one hand, the corrupt business style of faith, but on the other hand, the repetitive and impersonal loop that they were stuck in, never truly being forgiven, never truly finding a place with God. He would go on, of course, a few days later to provide salvation for free and in full, but we'll get to that on Friday. On the same day, Jesus curses a fig tree, which is a symbol of Israel, particularly a symbol of the Jewish faith. When he pronounces judgment over this fig tree, what he is doing is this. He is pronouncing judgment on Judaism for its emptiness and its legalistic distraction from a true relationship with God. He says to the fig tree, as if he's saying it to the temple establishment, you are empty, you, your fruit is, 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 is rotten, and all you are doing is wrapping people up in a legalistic trap that is not getting them closer to God, but is actually keeping them away from God. This, as you would expect, drove the religious leaders in from a, we don't like this guy, to we got to kill this guy. Of course, Jesus knew this would happen. So he leaves the scene on Monday after causing a stir, but he comes back Tuesday morning and he is ready for a full day of conversations with some of his greatest friends. The significance of this was on, from Wednesday into Thursday, people would be lining up for hours in the temple to purchase and prepare their Passover lamb and other animal sacrifices for this Thursday evening and Friday ceremonies. Jesus would spend this last open normal day because Wednesday things would get very, they would close for a while, clean up, and then get ready for the Wednesday evening rush. But on Tuesday was the last normal day for the temple for this festival season. So Jesus would come to the temple establishment and this would be his final standoff with the religious leaders. Um, he would cut ties essentially with them on this day. But before he would do that, he would contrast himself with the establishment, signaling that what he was about to do was the beginning of something brand new, not a continuation of what they were operating. When he arrives, the religious leaders meet him with a bone to pick about his actions and words the day prior, his rhetoric about the fig tree, his behavior in the temple. I mean, Jesus, why did you do all that? You turned our tables over. You let our animals free. What kind of man must you be? But they knew what he was trying to say, and they were not happy about it because it was starting to get out, and people were starting to pay attention, and people were starting to believe Jesus over them. So they come to Jesus essentially with this question, who do you think you are? Who do you think you are to march in here and tell us that we're wrong. I mean, who sent you to lecture us about the righteousness of God? Of course, we know who sent him. Now, he was going to answer this in a roundabout way, but first he lobs the question back at them. And that's what happens in Mark chapter 11, verse 27. Then they came again to Jerusalem and he was walking in the temple. The chief priests, the scribes and the elders, so a whole group of people came to him. And they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who do you think you are, Jesus? Who gave you the right to say this to us and to demonstrate this to us? Who gave you the authority to do these things? As in condemn us and declare that something new is coming. But Jesus answered and said, I also will ask you one question. Then answer me and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. So I got to say this. This is, this is so great. Jesus uh, in, in, in this moment is really going to teach us who we are should answer and who we shouldn't answer, but I'll get to that in a minute. 
30, the baptism of John, was it from heaven or was it of man? Answer me that. He said, I, I got to ask y'all a question first. John the Baptist, he's a folk hero. Y'all had to, you know, y'all, y'all paid lip service to him, but y'all didn't like him, did you? But everybody else loved him. So be careful what you say about this guy. But John, was he of God or was he just his own, was he just doing his own thing rogue from God? And they reasoned among themselves saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, why did you not believe him? So if we say that he was of God, then he's going to say, well, why did y'all, you know, not partner with him? And if we say from men, then they feared the people for they counted John to have been a prophet. So they knew that John was a folk hero. He had just died. So it was a touchy subject. So they answered and said to Jesus, we do not know. And Jesus said, Jesus answered and said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. If you can't answer me, I can't answer you. So let's just call it a draw. Now, Jesus was alluding to the fact that John the Baptist was signaling that his day was coming. That John was a bridge away from Judaism towards Christianity. And remember how Mark begins his gospel, Mark chapter 1. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness, which is significant because where was the religious headquarters in Jerusalem? In the temple. And what was John doing? He was drawing people away from the temple. And he was proclaiming that repentance and forgiveness was not found in the temple, but rather was found in the wilderness as if the Jews, they had been saved out of the wilderness. They had been domesticated and they'd been civilized. But John was saying, no, 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 we got to restart. We got to go back across the Jordan River and we got to go back to where Moses left us off and Joshua left us off because we've gotten it all wrong ever since. So now you can understand why John was not accepted by the religious leaders because he was drawing people away from their establishment to him. Scripture says all of Judea and all of Jerusalem were going out to him as opposed to going to the temple. So John first signaled that there is a new day coming. And John was dragging people away from the temple, away from Jerusalem to this nowheresville in the, in the wilderness to the Jordan River. And they were confessing their sins there. And they were feeling as if they were experiencing, encountering God apart from the religious system of Jerusalem and of the temple. So Jesus says, you know, hey, John really should have showed y'all this was coming. John was just the beginning of this, but I've come to finish the job. The emphasis here is the people were leaving the temple because it wasn't offering them true salvation. And now the religious leaders were clinging to what little authority they had left, but the writing had been on the wall. Now, sidebar, there are some questions depending on who asked them and how they are asked that you should never answer. You can cite me on this. I don't know if this, this is not necessarily of God. This is from me, but I think this is fair. I think this is fair game. There are some people that ask you questions and some questions they ask you, you should never answer. You know what Jesus does in this moment? In this moment, he frees us from the condemnation and dead-end discourse with religion. Religion is always going to nitpick you. Religious people, and they're in churches too, religious people are going to nitpick you and judge you and look over your shoulder and try to say that you're not doing it right and you're not doing the way they wanted you to do it. They're always going to look over your shoulder and they're always going to try to micromanage your life. Jesus says when they ask you questions, you don't owe them anything. There are religious types that come to me and they ask me questions, you know, why are you doing this or why do we do this? And my response is often, why do you do what you do? And I love you if this has ever happened with y'all. None of y'all's ever, we've never done this before. But if I ever say that to you and your response is not something about sincerely worshiping Jesus, 
If your response is, well, if, if the response is, well, I'm doing it because of this, this, and this, and it has nothing to do with Jesus, then I'm not obligated to answer you. And you're not obligated to answer anybody that comes at you with this kind of nonsense. Because if you're doing what you're doing with a sincere heart to worship Jesus, and someone else is doing something out of some religious tradition, Jesus says, don't answer them. It's a trap. Save yourself the conflict from flesh and blood that wants to be critical and judgmental and walk in the freedom of Jesus in his grace. And of course, the scripture is true always. But stand with Jesus and you'll be where you need to be. Now, Jesus goes on to tell a parable about how unresponsive Judaism had been to God's steps at trying to fulfill the promise to them. Over in Mark chapter 10 or Mark chapter 12, the end of that parable about how Israel had rejected the Savior God sent them, this is what Jesus says is the, is the fallout or the aftermath of that. Mark 12, verse 10 and 11. Have you not even read this scripture? The stone which the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in his eyes. That's a prophecy from the book of Psalms. And Jesus says, your rejection of me has fulfilled what God said was always coming. You rejected the Messiah and he is the cornerstone of something brand new. Now, what happens next is several waves of challenges from various sects of Judaism. Jesus has been dealing with since the beginning and the different establishments from within. Each party, each party comes from a different theological angle, attempting to discredit his platform. And the three parties that come to him are the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the scribes, or they're the people that studied the scripture and knew it better than anybody else. The Pharisees were a, were a group of people who took the Bible very literally and were very worried about day-to-day living and how it intersected with, with you know, politics and, and other social affairs. The Sadducees, they were kind of a high-minded, they were kind of the intellectual types. Uh, they, were very, they, they were so focused on, 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 on interpreting things in, in, in a very specific way that we'll talk about. But each party aimed to undermine Jesus by poking holes in his teaching and in his theology. And their plan was, no matter what his answer was, they were going to try to claim contradiction and expose him as a fraud and as a heretic. But to all three, Jesus is going to leave them speechless. The Pharisees come at him with a political axe to grind, with a question about paying taxes to Rome, which is something they didn't like to do. No one likes to do that, by the way. But they wanted to say, well, you know, we shouldn't pay taxes to Caesar because he claims to be God and we worship a different God, so we shouldn't pay taxes. But they were also ready to defend paying taxes as civil duty because, hey, if Jesus says don't pay taxes, then all of a sudden they're going to say, oh, Jesus is trying to start a revolution. You better watch out. So they were ready to point fingers either way. Um, the religion of Israel had been emptied of true power of God because the people were so worried about earthly matters. Either they were trying to win Rome's favor or they were complaining about Rome's terror, but the Pharisees and the Jewish people particularly, they were so focused on Rome because it was Rome's fault or if it was Rome's help. It was always about, hey, what do we got to do to get Rome's attention or to get rid of Rome? They were so worried and they were, as, they were thinking as if Rome controlled their future. In this situation, Jesus offers us so much freedom from similar issues in our day with world politics and powers by making it clear that his kingdom exists over and against all the kingdoms of the earth. In Mark 12, verse 15, when they ask him the question, hey, should we pay taxes or not? Verse 15, shall we pay or shall we not pay? But he, knowing their hypocrisy, said to them, why do you test me? Bring me a Daenerys that I may see it. He says, give me a coin. They brought it to him and he said, and I'm going to do my translation, whose face is on this coin? 
And he said, well, it's Caesar's face. And he says, okay, give what belongs to Caesar to Caesar, but whose image is on you? Go look in a mirror. Whose image is inscribed on you? It's not Caesar's. It's God's. So you give to God what belongs to God. Listen, I'm not worried about what belongs to Caesar. That's child's play to me. I'm worried about what belongs to God. And we, you all are so worried about Rome and so worried about worldly politics and powers, you are forget, forbidding to give, you're forgetting to give God what belongs to him because you're so worried about what belongs to this world. He says, as for that, the things of this world belong to this world. Get rid of those things. Give them to who they belong to and act as if they have no power over you. But we don't belong to the world. We belong to God. So we should live for him and above and beyond anything else. So in this moment, Jesus frees us from being so obsessed with politics and worldly affairs, doesn't he? He says, you just worry about who you belong to. And if you belong to God, who cares what goes on with Rome? Give Rome its taxes, but don't worry about them after that. And I think somebody walked away and said, that was a dumb question. Why are we asking that question? But they weren't done. Shame on us if we allow kings and kingdoms of this world to impress us or distress us. We belong to the king of kings. Now the Sadducees come up ready to contend with him about eschatology or the end of the world or the, uh, the eternal state. They didn't believe in the afterlife. They believed that you live for the pleasure of God and you simply faded away. But Jesus taught about a resurrection. They came to him with this elaborate ordeal of a woman who had been widowed again and again, remarried again and again. And they came at Jesus and said, Jesus, there's no way the resurrection is, is a thing that can happen because whose wife would this be in the resurrection? It would just be some polygamous thing and that's not of God. And then Jesus, poked, Jesus just stops them in the middle of their story in 12, 24. And he says, are you not therefore mistaken because you do not know the scriptures nor the power of God? For when they rise from the dead, they're neither married nor given to marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Concerning the dead that they rise, have you not read in the book of Moses in the burning bush passage how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. So what does Jesus do in this moment? See, they didn't believe in an afterlife, but he says, God is not the God of the dead. He's the God of the living, so I am speaks of people being alive, not in the past, but he speaks of this afterlife, this complicated affair. They could only imagine an afterlife that still revolved around them and around the world, not considering that God is able to make all things new and make all things much more satisfying than something we could imagine. And believe me, we're not gonna be worried about little simple worldly affairs when we get to the eternal state, when we get to the kingdom of God. God is able to make all things new in a way that we could never imagine. So we don't need to worry about all the, well, you know, how, what about all the technical technicalities? I think God has that, don't you? Because I think it's not about us, right? It's about him. And it's not about, well, you know, what, what, what road do I live on? Yeah, yeah, I think God's got this. And I know those are things we worry about and think about. They were just trying to, you know, discredit Jesus altogether. But we might literally worry about those things. But here's what the Bible tells us. What no eye has seen nor ear has heard, the heart of man has not imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. But it says this. These things God revealed to us through the Spirit. So if we let the Spirit of God work on us and teach us, we'll see what matters most. And we won't be distracted by these smaller or less important issues. Now, what God has prepared for us is much more splendid and glorious than what we might have now, what we could expect then. 
Again, in both cases, they were holding God back based on their worldly experience and expectations and limitations. This is why so many saved, so many people miss Jesus and why so many still do, because he came to save us from this world and from its sin. You know, we resist being saved from the most sinful element of this world, our own hearts and our own minds. See, that's what, that's what the Pharisees and Sadducees were struggling with. They, 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 they believed that they needed to be saved from the big, you know, sinful things, but they ignored the fact that their own hearts and minds had settled for something less. And that's why they couldn't see who Jesus was. That's why they couldn't see what he was trying to do and what he was trying to bring them to. See, what we've learned from the Footsteps series is that Jesus came to change what it means to be great. The triumphal entry showed us that there's a better kingdom coming. Jesus is our new cornerstone. So what is all this about? It's about showing us that God is trying to build something new, build something better, build something greater that is not stuck in and is not settling for the standards of this world. A cornerstone is literally what it sounds like. It's the corner marker the rest of the building gets its shape from. If the cornerstone is not properly respected and honored, the rest of the building will not come into shape as it was intended to. What this also implies is a total demolition of what is and a brand new construction of what God intends. Cornerstone means you got to tear the whole thing down. Not just the foundation and build up from there. Jesus is a brand new building. He's a brand new movement. The cornerstone is what gives shape to a new establishment. Jeremiah, I remember he told us this. God sent Jeremiah to pluck up, break down, destroy, and overthrow, as in we got to grind it down past everything that you think can stay. It's got to go. And this is a preview of the new covenant, of the new movement. In our own lives, God has to grind away everything that is not based and rooted in his word and his will. Anything that is not 100% inspired and informed by him is a candidate for not simply reform, but total restoration. Now, lastly, a scribe comes to Jesus ready to continue this game of antagonizing him. But in the process, his heart is melted and he sees the light. Look over at verse 28. Then one of the scribes came and having heard them reasoning together, perceiving that he answered them well, asked him, which is the first or the greatest commandment of them all? And Jesus answered and said, the first is of all the commandments is, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and with all your strength. This is the first commandment. And, oh, Jesus, there's just one first. It can't be two. He says, no, 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 I got to go more. And the second is like it, as in you can't have the first without the second. It's two sides of the same coin. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe, I think he went off script here. Because the scribe was sent by his entourage to do what the Pharisees and the Sadducees did, which was try to poke holes and if it doesn't work, walk away. But the scribe apparently hears Jesus and he is convinced. The scribe says, well said, teacher. And I think everybody looks around and says, you're not supposed to be agreeing with him. You're supposed to be arguing with him. Well said, teacher. You have spoken the truth for there is one God and there is no one no other but he, and to love him with all your heart, with all understanding, with all your soul, and with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as yourself is more than all the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And that really bothered the religious leaders. 
Jesus saw that he answered wisely, as I think Jesus, of course, he knew all things, but even he was a little bit surprised that this was the guy's response. And what does he say? You are not far from the kingdom of God. This guy is suddenly, suddenly, as Jesus talks, it's all about a relationship with God. It's about doing away with politics and religion of this world and taking it back to the basics of Eden. That in the beginning, it was all about humanity created in God's image, meant to walk with God in love and reflect his love one to another. This is what Jesus was bringing things back to. He was building a kingdom that would be realized not with castles and riches, but with a community and with righteousness. Why does Jesus say you're not far? Because he essentially just got an education in Christianity 101. The scribe who knew the Old Testament front and back got a preview of the New Testament and these two commandments. Jesus takes 600 plus and shrinks them down, reduces them down, summarizes them to two. But it wasn't as simple as saying do this or don't do that. The reason the religious leaders rejected this so hard is because it wasn't in their heart or anybody's heart to do anything out of love for God or others. And the reason for that is sin makes everything we do come from a place of lust, which is a warped, corrupted, and twisted self-love. But this is why Jesus kept saying, follow me, follow me, because he was going to do a work for our hearts that we could not do for ourselves, that we do not naturally desire. They can only be received and experienced by trusting in him. Jesus is going to free us from self and sin and fill us with his spirit and his grace. But it's only because of what he's going to do this week that we even have this option. Remember back in Jeremiah, we read this a few weeks ago. Jeremiah told us, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with the fathers on the day when I took them out by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, even though I was their husband, I was as a father to them, but it's better than that old covenant. For this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within their heart. I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. For they shall all know me from the least to the greatest, declares the Lord. I'll forgive their iniquity and remember their sin no more. So this is what is going to enable us to love God and love people like we should. Now after this, Jesus gives another scathing sermon about hypocrisy of religion how it was all for show and nothing was sincere, how they were so in love with their establishment, they were so worried about keeping people out more than bringing people in. They lost sight of God's glory and rejected God's will. He looked into the future where there would be no temple, a future not more than 40 years away. He foretells a day when they would cling, when all that they had clung to would be taken away. He sees a future where only what he is establishing and those that follow him will be left. As Tuesday comes to an end, Jesus goes back to Bethany, but the religious leaders don't go home that night. Instead, they call an emergency meeting of the Sanhedrin. And Mark tells us in chapter 14 that after two days or on Wednesday, it was the, the, as the Passover was being prepared, the religious leaders prepared and planned to take him by trickery and put him to death. Now, John tells us more information, how they feared Jesus might cost them everything, but they were determined to do whatever they had to do to get rid of them. Little did, little did they know 
Little did they know their attempt to erase Jesus from history would actually highlight his story. Their attempt to cancel Jesus would actually propel him to greater glory, but they didn't know that. Meanwhile, Jesus spent Wednesday away from Jerusalem at the home of some of his dear friends. We're told in Mark 14, verse 3, that he was at Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, where he sat at a table with a few very important people. Now, more likely, this was a former leper, but I love that his previous category is mentioned because it was, it's, it's mentioned here so that we know it did not disqualify him from being with Jesus. But there were four people in this house that are very important. Simon the leper, Lazarus, of course, we know him very well, Mary, Magdalene, and Martha. Now, these four people had very unique backgrounds. Simon had been diseased, Lazarus had been dead, Mary had been demon-possessed, and Martha, we know her from that story where she was distracted by many things. Jesus had saved all of these from the world. And now they would spend the last normal day of Jesus' life with him, worshiping him. Mary had a special ceremony planned for Jesus as if they all knew what was coming. These four had something with Jesus that the 12 didn't even have. They were simply friends in a community, in a fellowship together, around a love for God and a love for each other. The disciples didn't even get this. It says there in Mark chapter 14, verse 3, that a woman, we know this is Mary, came with an alabaster flask, a very costly oil of spikenard. She broke the flask and poured it on his head. But there were some who were indignant among themselves, and they said, why was this fragment, a frag, a fragrant oil wasted? For it might have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they criticized her sharply. Now, we know from the other gospels, this was the disciples. Not just one, but a plural of them. Always trying to play big brother to Jesus, keeping him in touch with more important things, frustrated that this special festival time was slipping away. Now, we know that Judas was the instigator, but it says they, they all didn't get it. Still distracted with lesser things, missing true greatness, missing true victory, missing the cornerstone. Jesus says, let her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a good work for me. For you have the poor with you always, and whenever you wish, you may do them good. But me, you do not always have. Now, they didn't care about the cost, or they weren't caring about the poor. They were just greedy. For you have the poor with you always, verse 8, for she has done what she could. She has come beforehand to anoint my body for burial. Assuredly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told as a memorial to her. Jesus says this is true worship. As contrasted by the temple, worship is our response to who and what we value the most. See, Mary did something that was considered wasteful to the world. It's so important that the temple was empty of worship this week. But Simon the leper's house was bustling with the Spirit of God. Mary did something the world could not see it because the world only sees through numbers and spreadsheets. But you see, nothing is a waste. Nothing is a waste if we dedicate it to God. Everything can be for gain if it's done and spent and given for the glory of God, but that's a big if. The contrast in the story is with the words of the 12 as they cite Mary as wasting something. They probably thought Simon opening his house, Martha's service, and Lazarus' fellowship were also a waste because they were just looking at their clock. 
See, the world doesn't see the value of worship. They see power to grab, better things to do, easier or more profitable paths to take. That's what the temple was all about. That's what the disciples were all about at this point. But church, we can learn from this Holy Week pause where Jesus and his four personal friends spend his last few hours together. If you couple that with the words of Jesus the day prior in the temple, it's clear that Jesus was trying to signal a major change in what it means to know God. We see in this prototype of the first church, their minds and their hearts are radically on different things in the world and the religious scene. After this, Judas bails, seeing a chance to betray Jesus. The rest of the 12 would bail soon, save John. But come Friday, when everything got dark, these four friends of Jesus would still be by his side. Isn't that interesting? Peter isn't at the cross. Andrew, Bartholomew, Philip, none of those guys. Judas, of course, is nowhere near the cross. He's already dead by that point. But Martha and Mary are there. Maybe Simon and Lazarus weren't allowed to come in. Of course, Lazarus was a public enemy number one because he had been dead before. Simon, a previous leper, he wouldn't have been let in. But if they could have been there, they would have been there. These four friends remind us that they saw something the rest of the world didn't see. Because Jesus was their cornerstone. He had reshaped their lives. He was their victory when everyone else saw defeat. He showed them true greatness. They saw the cross for what it truly was. Salvation for you and salvation for me. A pathway to true greatness, total victory, and the cornerstone of a brand new life and a brand new way to live. Jesus had set them free from settling for the world's standards. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, they didn't get it. Even the disciples didn't get it. The temple was empty of God's spirit. Simon the leper's house. That's where it was at. We don't talk much about Simon the leper's house. We don't talk much about what happened on Wednesday before the crucifixion. But what, on, what happened on Wednesday might be the greatest template for what should happen every single day of our lives. This side of the cross. Are we following in their footsteps? Or do you find yourself more in the Pharisees and the Sadducees asking questions, trying to poke holes, trying to contradict, trying to be critical? Do you find yourself in the shoes of Simon and Lazarus, Mary and Martha, and all they wanted to do was worship Jesus? Because they saw him for who he truly was, their cornerstone of a brand new way to live. I hope this will encourage and inspire you, church, to think about what it means to know Jesus. I hope it'll Help us all to look into the next few days and see what we've been given an opportunity, how we've been given an opportunity to live because of the new covenant, because of what Jesus has done for us. I pray that we're following in their footsteps, in his footsteps, this Easter. Let me pray for you. Father, thank you so much for this pathway you've laid out for us. Thank you for showing us in these four people and contrasting them with the very people that should have had it right. But tragically, they didn't. And we're more often than not in their categories as well. Father, help us to see that Jesus is our cornerstone, shaping our lives around something much more important, around a lifestyle of worship, where you are everything, where it's worth giving all to you 
at whatever else's expense. Thank you for liberating us from this world, from its standards, from settling for less. Thank you for giving us true life, new life, the best life. Lord, help us to follow in their footsteps. Help us to follow in your footsteps. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.